The Psychiatric Trainees Committee of the Royal College of Psychiatrists is proud to present You Are Not Alone, a podcast series covering a range of topics affecting the well-being of healthcare professionals. There's a lot more talk about mental health and well-being since the pandemic began. However, well-being is complex, dynamic, and personal. It is not something that can just be solved with resilience training or mindfulness. Both those things have its place, but concepts such as intersectionality explain why there is so much more to consider while discussing the well-being of healthcare professionals. This is what we hope to do through our conversations. Episode 6: Doctors of Ethnic Minorities. Welcome to the final episode of You Are Not Alone series. I'm Shivon Matekin, a specialty trainee in psychiatry in the East of England, and I'm delighted to be joined by two very eminent guests who have contributed in so many ways to the profession of psychiatry. First, we have Professor Femi Oyebode, who is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Birmingham. Psychiatrists young and old may know him first and foremost as the author of Sims Symptoms in the Mind textbook which i'm sure has sparked an interest in many medical students to choose psychiatry he's also written other books including mind readings as well as six volumes of poetry he has a varied research interest in clinical psychopathology medical humanities application of ethics to psychiatric practice to name a few he received the rc psych lifetime achievement award in 2016 and an honorary frc psych in 2019 Professor thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We also joined by Dr. Shibalade Smith who is a consultant forensic psychiatrist at the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. She was awarded the RC Psych Psychiatrist of the Year in 2019 and also awarded a CBE the same year. She is one of the two presidential leads for race and equality at the RC Psych along with Dr. Rajesh Mohan. Her research interests also include black mental health side effects of psychotropic medication physical health in severe mental illness women's mental health and mental health law thank you for joining us dr smith great so this is a really huge topic to cover but um a very important one and we feel very lucky to have you both join us today it's also interesting that we are recording this during black history month even if the recording won't be out before the end of october so i wanted to start with white privilege as a term um i moved to the uk from india and i've probably not heard this term prior to that and it's been one of the things along with learning various other terms related to race and equality um that's been new to me i wondered if i could ask your thoughts on this term as well as how you would explain this to someone who has not heard of it so i'll i'll come to you first um uh, dr smith so um so the thing about the term white privilege is that it's actually it's really it's, it's an academic term and it's a term that's been uh you know it's been around for decades actually you know uh, essentially sociologists have been studying the concept for years and it and it does mean something quite specific and it does refer to um the advantage conferred by having 
skin that is white, essentially. And uh, essentially the advantage, and this is a worldwide advantage born out of um, uh, the European dominance in uh, in terms of just across the world in terms of colonialism and, um, you know, uh, uh, the European dominance in terms of, um, you know, well, it's essentially it's, it's, you know, it's imperialism. And I think the difficult, but I think I actually personally find it an unhelpful term because it's been bastardized, I think. And um, in that in the same way that, you know, people use the word stress. Uh, it actually has a it has a very specific medical meaning. And um, the term white privilege doesn't it doesn't mean and it's, it's frequently misunderstood and misinterpreted. And in that sense, that's why I think it can be a bit unhelpful. Really, what it what it is to do with is the disadvantage of, that is um, that occurs if you have uh, non-white skin. And I think there could be we have to acknowledge that now it's an unhelpful term. And it um, because it creates too much division um, when, because people don't understand what it means. And unless you're going to be able to explain to people what it means, you've got the opportunity to explain to people what it means when you use it, then using it as a shorthand and then dismissing people who don't understand it isn't useful because all that happens then is that there's you, people just getting into an argument when you've got someone who is um, white working class from Middlesbrough brought up on a council estate and feels that in no way they've ever had any privilege in their life. And you say, yeah, but you have you have white privilege because you're, you know, because you're white. And it's very hard for people to understand what that means. They don't understand that if that what that means is if they thought to themselves, you know what, I've got a couple of hundred quid. I'm going to buy myself a package tour to Croatia. They wouldn't have to worry that people are going to look at them funny in the street or that people might spit at them and stuff like that. So in some ways, it'd be great if we could think of a term that conferred the disadvantage that exists for people who are not white, rather than thinking about the advantages that people who are, are white might have, because so many people who are white don't feel that they, their lives are advantaged in any way at all. But, you know, essentially, it's a it's a. It's a difficult term because I think it's misunderstood too frequently. Thank you, Dr. Smith. That that um, that was perfect to explain what my um, dilemma was because I I was wondering if it is useful as a term or can it be misunderstood um, often when trying to have these uncomfortable conversations um, in terms of uh, the differences in people's life experiences. Um, Professor, do you do you agree that it's an unhelpful term or did you have a different view on the term white privilege? Yes, I think if I might say that um, a, a way to think of it is just to try to understand what the term is saying. And um, and so, you know, I was born I was born in 1954. So I lived for six years as a, as a, as a subject of Her Majesty in, in a colonial country called Nigeria. And, and you might think that the post-colonial period is a great difference from my first six years of life. So, so, and, and to, to understand these issues, it's no, doesn't do any harm at all just to give an example of where this, these, these matters, where, where they're speaking to and where they're coming from. So, so very many years ago, um, I went with a group of psychiatrists. I think there were five or six of us 
traveling from the UK to, to Boston. And it just happened to be that, that on that occasion, there was a, there was a snowstorm. So the flight which should have arrived in New York arrived instead in Toronto. And I was the only person traveling on a non-British passport. And, um, and we, we arrived there by mistake. We, you know, the plane hadn't intended to, 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 to land in Toronto. And the, the Canadians acted as if I had deliberately arranged for the plane to land in Toronto. And, and it was embarrassing, very embarrassing for me and for the other colleagues who were all white psychiatrists. And, and we were delayed precisely because they asked me why I had stopped in Toronto. Why would they ask me that question? So, so I give that example in order to make the point absolutely clear that the arrangements we have in the world at present um, privilege some people. And that's just a matter of fact. That is not, that's not an accusation. It's not a statement to make anybody feel guilty or ashamed or anything of that sort. It's just a matter of fact. My children's cousins who live in Lagos, who are as successful, intellectually as successful as my children, have great difficulty traveling around the world. And my children don't have any difficulty traveling around the world. So these arrangements which have occurred, which were prevalent during the, the, the imperial period, are still present in this post-colonial period. And, and the advantages that, um, that uh, 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 some people have, which are implicit, these advantages need to be made more explicit so that people recognize that we live in an unequal world. And, and the ways in which these advantages affect us and the ways in which they adversely uh, affect us are myriad and subtle and insidious and uh, and and they uh, uh, and I'm sure you're going to go on to talk about this in a minute, but they also attack our self-esteem. So so uh, the other example I'll give, and there are no apologies for these terms. And actually, these terms weren't invented by black people. Uh, they you know it's the American Anthropological Society that actually codified it, and that's not black Americans. Um, so then there's no shame in these terms. There's no apologies for them or anything of that sort. So, so, so the other example I want to give to show you how extra, I give two examples actually. So, for example, you're reading, you're reading a text on an anthropological text. And I read that because that's just how my mind works. And, and every single page, on every single page, there's an assault on my self-esteem. People have to go out of their way to say that non-white people are, are primitive. They, and they're doing that totally unconsciously. They're doing it casually. They're doing it gratuitously. It is extraordinary the degree to which people do that. And, and for all sorts of reasons, I, I wanted to read Margaret Yusina, who's a very, very famous uh, French novelist. And um, and she's chosen to write something she calls Oriental Oriental tales, and she takes Indian folk tales and Indian myths, and and she's not translating, she's reformulizing them, and she's writing about Kali, who you will know, uh, Siobhan. So she's writing about Kali, 
And, and in her version of Kali, she wants to say Kali is a woman who is very lustful and who has sex with different people. And so she, she says in this passage, you know, that Kali has sex with, uh, with farmers and she has sex with the lowest caste people in India and this, that and the other. And then the last section of this, and it's not a translation, it's her own writing. The last clause, she says, and has sex even with a black man. And the word even does all the work for you. So the point I'm trying to make there is that we have to accept that these matters are pervasive, that these matters occur all the time and and that they are thoughtlessly done. Um, and I could go on and on and give examples, but you, you've got the point. You've understood the point I'm making. So these terms that we are saying, I agree. I agree with Lade that these terms can be unhelpful. But they are helpful to the degree that they make explicit something about the structures of the world that we currently inhabit. Thank you, Professor. And that did also remind me of um, things that you realize as you journey along life as well. Um, growing up in India, something I reflected since coming here was how although arranged marriages were very much the norm when I was growing up, um, there would be the odd person who who met somebody and got married and if if that was as a brown person at least I can't generalize the patterns were that if that was to a white person that would somehow still be considered oh that's that's exciting that kind of way but if it was to a black person that's not how it would be seen at all and and I never thought about it till I came here and started living in a very diverse community um so your your story about kali made me made me think about that um so thank you so much for sharing that and i i guess my reflection was a small clip uh, John Amechi had done on white privilege to sort of resolve that misunderstanding that Lade was talking about when people just hear the term because um, he talks about how people would think, oh, are you trying to say I don't have a hard life because I'm white? And he goes on to say it's it's not to say that at all. It's basically the absence of an inconvenience or an impediment, which if you have that privilege, you don't notice that you have it. Um, but it doesn't mean you don't have a hard life. It just means that if you have hardship and suffering, that's that's not due to your skin color. So can I can I just say something, actually? One of the things I've always thought about white privilege is the problem is, in a sense, is that what it doesn't do is that it it fails to acknowledge the ongoing and all pervasive uh, disadvantage that exists if you're not white. And again, yet again, it, it still talks about how what white people have. And it's a ref and, and actually, my view is that what you get if you are white should be what everyone gets anyway. That should be the norm. It's not that it's above and beyond and that you as, as everybody should have the what we describe as an advantage. I don't think it should be an advantage. I think it should be the norm. Everyone is described as having an advantage of being able to walk anywhere around the world. If you certainly if you're white male, you can go anywhere around the world and no one's going to look at you oddly. They might say what well, you know, you you'll always be welcomed in. You'll have a place to stay. Actually, if you're not white, that you can't guarantee that. And but that should be the norm rather than be seen as an advantage. And so I kind of I feel that the descriptions that are given 
are not sufficient to convey the disadvantage that exists for everybody else rather than the advantage that exists for um, someone who's white, if that makes sense. Yes, it makes uh, total sense, Dr. Smith. Thank you so much. And I guess similar to that, what you were saying is um, in the wake of um, the Sarah Everett murders and there were a lot of um, murder, there were people sort of saying things like if um, if if the world we live in was different, what would you do? And there were women saying things like I, I would be fine to go to a beach and sit there by myself at at midnight and simple things which um, then sort of became a movement where men sort of started thinking um, walking in the other person's shoe and seeing what privileges they had gender wise. Um, So taking this conversation about the current world we live in to our workplace, um, the NHS workplace to be more specific, what what do you think about um, identifying microaggressions? So especially people who maybe worked in um, pe- around with people who are of the same ethnicity and then coming here, um, working in a very diverse environment. How would you advise them um, how to pick up microaggressions, which are harder to evidence than more overt um racist behavior how how would one go about that i'll come to you first professor um i mean as you know as you know siobhan the the term microaggression is a relatively new term um and um and i suppose it's trying to say something about behaviors which are uh, relatively low level behaviors which indicate some degree of uh, hostility, uh, but which obviously, if you were to identify them, the uh, the person would could say very clearly that um, that they hadn't intended it in that sort of way. I suppose that's what it's supposed to be about. I think the, the first thing to say is that um, the world is very, very complex. And there's a question you've got to ask yourself about what where your bias in terms of what you object to and uh, and i think there there are behaviors which go on every day and uh, and there's a question in your mind about which ones matter so i suppose the first thing to do is to recognize that there may be behaviors which are intended to be hostile and that some of these behaviors may not be necessarily consciously or intentionally displayed that's not to say they're not harmful. And secondly, that these behaviors, they're so, they're so prevalent, so ubiquitous that the question of when you actually respond to them is a question that you've got to address. But the real interest from my point of view is how you protect the self, because I regard them as assaults on the self. I regard them as assaults on self-esteem. I regard them as assaults on sense of worth. And so the, 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 whether or not you identify them, whether you not you tell the person, whether or not you object to them, the real question is how you protect sense of self in these sort of circumstances. Thank you, Professor. Um, that's very thought provoking, especially the bit you said about the impact and the assault uh, on our own self-esteem. Um, because I, th- I think it's very draining the little experience I have uh, when you're trying to figure out a certain behavior or an incident when you're trying to make sense is this something else or is this am i just imagining this should i be doing something about this 
is it worth my mental energy um what 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 do you think dr smith about this so um so i think one of the things that's important to notice is that there are uh you know these these they are daily they are all pervasive they're extremely subtle they are insidious and these microaggressions occur direct can occur directly to you as an individual but i think more frequently what people will see is them occurring to other people who are marginalized within the environment and actually i think the one especially now i suspect that those of us who are older probably don't notice them or have had to put up with them a lot more and so don't deal with them when they happen to us individually and I think people who are younger are much more likely to pick them up and say something there and then and say, actually, oh, that's not really OK. Or could you this is how you say my name, that kind of thing. I mean, I, I frankly, people say my name incorrectly all the time. And I have just been used to that. Uh, funny enough, not when I was little, but since certainly since I, you know, been at um, well, actually more from when I since I've been a doctor, people say my name incorrectly all the time. People I work with now still say my name incorrectly. Doesn't matter how I. Um, you know, introduce it. And, and the way I deal with it, so it's, it's a, if you haven't got a Nigerian accent, it's difficult to say. And um, and it's lovely to hear Femi say my name, for example, because he said it so correctly. And it's a dreadful thing to hear people with what I, it's often people with Southern accents, but it's not necessarily Southern accents say my name because they just say it like, you know, anyway, it doesn't really matter how they say it, but it's said awfully. In a sense, it's the, the issue is not when you say to somebody, it's how you say it. It's when they deliberately, completely, you know, continue to say it incorrectly because they're not choosing to hear what you say. They're not choosing to make the effort, you know. But that's the kind of thing that I think is easier to pick. It's, it's easier to pick up and to, to say something about. And younger people do that better. The issue for me is more the microaggressions that occur to everybody else and that you'll see happening. And it, will be, it might be in a, a ward round or in a in a in a, uh, a committee meeting type setting, a meeting setting. And someone says something, it's a throwaway comment, a throwaway joke. Oh, well, we know we know about these people. And it's actually very derogatory, really. And the shame and the embarrassment that someone will feel. But they but then there'll be the additional shame and embarrassment to actually say something about it. But the fact is that if it's it, it requires it does require courage and it requires bravery and it requires practicing a way of saying something at the time. That me, and I say we're, we're psychiatrists. We have to do this all the time. Say things to people that they're not going to like, but we say it in a way that is more palatable. And you can say to someone, "I noticed that you mentioned there that um, you know this person may not be able to manage that that activity because they're a bit lazy." I'm not sure if you realise, but that kind of implies that you're saying it's something about them being from this particular ethnicity. I just want to be sure that everyone's in agreement. That's not true, is it? And, you know, you can make you can make it so that everyone has to agree in that position with that position. But it still makes the point without necessarily embarrassing that person. It's hard for you to do, but it's better to do it um, in the moment, because if you don't do it in the moment, then after, very quickly people say that's not what he said, is it? Because the fact that they've accepted it at the time implies that it was okay so if you wait until the moment is gone then it is too late it does make it easier again when you get to the stage you don't have to worry about your job anymore 
And so there is there is a kind of curve that happens, you know, at the beginning, it's hard. In the middle, it's it's even harder. But when you get to the end and you're about to retire or you're retired, I mean, now I just say, uh, sorry, what, what did you just say there? I'll make a joke of it. Did you actually say that you thought this man was lazy because he was black? I'm sure you didn't, did you? Um, I'll make a joke of it, but it makes the point. And um, I would say you have to do it in the moment. It's a it's a dynamic thing. Otherwise, it's lost. Uh, you make it sound very easy, but I honestly struggle sometimes, um, like with the examples that you gave very eloquently. And and I also wondered exactly what you said about if that's much harder when you're more junior in the team, in the organization, as compared to as you get to a higher position. And I wonder if, if that's part of the barriers for more for junior people to make these things heard. I, th- I mean, you're right. It is more difficult if you're junior. If you're junior, but I also know that if you recognise the microaggression and you recognise it and you recognise it, then, as Femi said, it takes its toll. It it erodes gradually your self-esteem, and it gets harder and harder and harder. And um, being the difficult character is more likely to you're more likely that you'll be ascribed the the designation difficult person if you come out with things after when you're so frustrated that it kind of is almost an outburst and then it's not said eloquently etc you're more likely to be able to say something about it if you can make say it in a controlled measured way if you can make it humorous humor dispels things so if you can make it humorous then do and do it early and do it in the moment and or make it a question you can say, I just want, I was just checking something. You know, when you said that, is that about that particular individual or is that a general thing? Make it a question. You can say, oh, you know, oh, I'm, I'm new to this job. I'm just wondering what you meant there exactly. But if you can add humour to it, and you have to practice different mechanisms of, of I mean, you know, different mechanisms by which you would um, point the problem out. But number one, you have to point the problem out when it happens. Number two, if you can do it with humour, all the better. Number three, um, make it a question. Thank you. That that nicely takes us to the next bit about um, barriers um, to speaking up. Um, we've already touched on a, on a few, uh, including being labelled as the problematic person bringing up issues. The other thing we've heard from colleagues, um, juniors, is fear of repercussion um, and also that nothing would come out of it. So again, slightly related to that um, chipping away in terms of, you know, how it drains you over time. Uh, For example, the GMC training survey where we are encouraged to report things like bullying and any particular issues. um, My understanding is that it, it does sort of if there are issues highlighted, it sort of goes back to your training program um sort of direction and the people above you so in a way partly um one could argue it's not really anonymous and and then you can justify why people feel scared because it it is in a way then identifiable especially if you're in a very small training program so i i just wondered um what do we um think are those barriers and how can we um or maybe people a bit higher up in terms of culture change how how can we change those barriers and make it easier for people to speak up i'll come to you first professor um I mean, you've already said it all, really, that um, that these are difficult matters. Um, 
and I'm never sure what to say in these these this sort of area of life. What I mean is that um, you've got to live. You know, you have to live, and um, therefore you have to choose your battles. Um, and you, 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 you know, so and you don't want to be a victim because a victim position is a bad position to be in. Um, it's very, very, you know, it's very disarming if you are in a victim position. It doesn't give you authorial agency. It, um, it, it, um, it imprisons you. Um, so, so, so there's a lot to be said for choosing your moment, really. Um, so, so it, I, I just think I take the point, and you got, one's got to be very careful. I take the point about injustice. You know, you've got to fight against injustice. And I, I, I'm very anxious not to come across as if you've got to, um, you know, be so compromised because you don't want to fight. You, you know, there's a, uh, 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 there's, a there's, there's a Czech writer, uh, Rabau, you know, Rabau, he, he's um, killed himself in the end. And some people think maybe he fell from a block of flats, but he probably killed himself. And and his whole of his life is to do with being having not to be against the the communist government because he's afraid of physical repercussions of being against the communist government. He's afraid of being spending time in prison. But he's also a, a deeply, deep, very, very deeply um, person with incredible integrity and who understands the nature of justice and all that sort of stuff. So what I'm trying to say there is that you're, if you make too many compromises, it's damaging to sense of self. If you live in the world that we live in, the world attacks your your situation, it attacks who you are. Um, so it's like a never ending kind of, um, you know, dilemma that one's in. Um, but even just saying that aloud is helpful for all the younger people to hear it, that that you are treading a, a very, very fine world that you're. You you cannot be too alert to insult because if you are too alert to insult, you can't live the life that you've got to live. You know, Tony Morrison says that these matters are sent our way to distract us. So that's Tony Morrison's way of thinking of it. And another way of thinking of it is, James, sorry to go on about literature because literature is so very helpful. Not at all. It's very interesting. You know, and James Baldwin said, James Baldwin said, you know, the person you see is not who I am. So that is James Baldwin's way of sidestepping it to say, you know, you see me as a black man in America and you think I'm not I'm stupid. I'm not bright. I'm lazy. But that's not who I am. You know, so you've got you're treading all this all the time. So you've got to be alert to them, but not overwhelmed by them. And you've got to choose your moment and you've got to choose your battles. And and but all the time, too, there's all the other aspects of this. So it's not all to do with complaints. So, for example, uh, in the culture we live in, uh, being Afro-Caribbean is not particularly esteemed. But some of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century Afro-Caribbeans, you, you know, so so Derek Walcott is, is the master of the English language and it's not English, you, you know. So you have to remind people of that. And, and and you're doing it in a throwaway sort of way in order to guide, gradually affect the other person's perception, which is an erroneous per- perception. But you don't do it by summonizing. You're doing it just like we are doing, talking and reminding ourselves of the things that matter and indicating to ourselves the facts that you might not think highly of us, but we do know that we are 
humans and that we have value and things of that sort. So, so it's it's a complex uh, way of living. Um, but you can't, unless you want to go back to where you come from, um, if you want to think of it in those ways. I'm, you know, I've lived in Britain 42 years. I'm not going anywhere. And, and therefore, what I'm going to have to do to live here is to adapt to it in such a way to the degree that I'm not invalidated, which is what we're all trying to ensure that we're not. That makes a lot of sense, uh, Professor. It, you actually reminded me with your earlier example as well about um, getting used to things. So I used to always think about the very long uh, queues, almost three hours at Heathrow every time we come uh, for anyone without a British passport. And we would often see the empty queues on the other side where people can just walk through. But the officer still wouldn't sort of, you know, help to make this queue any shorter. But uh, it just somehow reminded me about what you said about picking your battles and where you think change might happen. Um, and I guess also it brings in about intersectionality, because if you have multiple characteristics that make you. I not sure if vulnerable is the right word, it makes you think that there are even more reasons why um, you don't want to go through with this or you need to pick your battles carefully in terms of um, consequences and just keeping yourself um, sane, I guess um, it makes it even more tricky. What What do you think about uh, this, Dr. Smith? I wholeheartedly agree with Femi, actually. There is something about you almost have to have a policy for yourself, don't you? It's a bit like, you know, those of you who do Twitter and stuff like that, you'll have a policy about how you tweet. You know, you, there'll be some people who tweet about personal stuff and there'll be some people who only tweet about work stuff or only tweet about, you know, articles they've read in the news, etc. You almost have to have a policy because you are going to have to protect yourself. And at the same time, and protecting yourself doesn't simply mean um, keeping your head down. Because, and you mentioned um, SAS doctors and international um, medical graduates in particular who have the big problem of if you keep your head down, then you're just ignored and you are overlooked and repeatedly overlooked, actually. And you'll be overlooked forever. You'll, you'll be never you'll never be properly seen. As James Baldwin said, you'll never be seen as for, for who you are. So completely ignoring everything and just putting up with it isn't enough. And also it does erode one's self-esteem. And fully enough, keeping to the kind of literary um because um, the, the you know the the, the literary uh aspects I, I was really reminded of um the there's a quote by um uh Viet Thanh Ngoi and he's a he's actually a professor of, he's a Vietnamese American a professor of uh, English and, and English and ethnicity studies and he says um what what you know while it's best it's something to be like while it's best to be loved it's it's um, as you say, well, it's better to be loved than hated. That's it. It's better to be loved than hated, but it's far better to be hated than ignored. And and just to be and, and that thing of just to be not even noticed. If someone hates you, at least they have an emotion about you. They they care about you as an individual, even if the the the, the thought they have about you is a negative one. If they love you, then that's obviously the best position. But to not even be noticed. You know, to not even be counted as a human being, to make no impact um, is a dreadful thing. And to me, not only so it means if you don't have your policy about what you're going to what your battles are going to be, then it means that you do particularly risk, you risk, especially if you're one of those small rotations, you're, um, you know, uh, an overseas doctor or um, a SAS doctor, whatever, 
you are going to end up being someone who isn't ever seen for who you are as an individual, even though it's a small a small group of people. And they just they so what does that mean that they see you as? They just see you as this brown or black placard, you know, a cardboard two dimensional figure who is there to write the prescription charts and clerk the patients like some kind of workhorse robot, but you don't get seen as an individual. Now that is quite a significant erosion on you as a person. And so I mean actually back to the the, the question of um so uh how do you manage it then you have you have to actively have your policy about where you're going to speak up and what you know what you're going to speak up about and um everyone's going to be different because everyone has different you know some people are much bolder in themselves and will be able to speak up for everybody and you might only be able to speak up for yourself and there'll be some people who might decide actually what I'm going to do is I'm always going to speak up when it comes to the patients and that might be the easiest thing, because if you speak up about microaggressions that you see happening to the patients, then it will have it, it will have an impact on um, people's thoughts about other people who might look like those patients. You know, and that kind of links in again with white privilege, because if you you know, that's an example of white privilege, actually, because you don't necessarily you don't you're not going to be subject to the microaggressions, So you don't have to have a policy for how you're going to deal with them in your life. That's actually quite a nice thing, a nice situation to be in. Although having said that, though, there's no reason at all why if you're white, you can't speak up if you notice some, you know, a microaggression. And the other thing to note as well is that it's not microaggressions are not the um, are just not are not the domain of white people. Microaggressions happen. Uh, lots and lots and lots of different types of people, uh, unfortunately, um, can be microaggressive in their behaviour to others. And um, and that's a function of internalised racism, I'm afraid. But there we go. Thank you, Dr Smith. Um, very valid points. And I guess that brings us on to things like unconscious bias training. And because um, it's it's not that only white people are racist, like you were saying, like I, I know that brown people are racist too. Um, there's Is there value in sort of things like bystander training, speaking, you know, about speaking up for others, especially you spoke about the wider picture where patients are duty to patients about the quality of care and things like this affecting the quality of care they receive. Do you think there's value in bystander training, unconscious bias training, things like that? So um, it's controversial. <laughs> bystander training, training, yes, I think it's a really, really, really useful thing because it does help people to not only understand the issue, but also if it's good bystander training, the stuff that I've seen anyway, does provide people with practical strategies to to manage difficult situations, you know, discriminatory situations when they arrive and not just, uh, you know, uh, racist behaviour, but all discriminatory situations. So bystander training, big thumbs up. The difficulty with unconscious bias training is it's it's generally done very, you know, there's massive variation in quality. Uh, it's often based on just making people aware of their unconscious bias. And the whole point about unconscious bias is that it's unconscious. You don't know about it. You know, we all have our prejudices and we haven't 
we haven't, we haven't deliberately decided right today. I've decided I'm generally going to dislike people who wear um, corder, brown corduroy jackets. You know, <laughs> it doesn't come about like that. What happens is that um, because of the all pervasive signals that we get in our society sometimes it'll be familial thing that reinforces that there'll be role models in our family or in our lives that reinforce um prejudicial behavior and it becomes part of what you do everyone knows you know i mean i remember going away where was it we were sightseeing by some very famous uh you know palace somewhere and we were sitting on some steps and some tourists walked by from a particular place it's myself and my daughter and um, they were walking by and then there was a little girl with them who was dancing around with an umbrella and she danced into us. She looks up from her umbrella. She sees it's these, um, you know, black people. And she literally jumped backwards and then ran, ran to her to her family and they cowered from us. And I was thinking, wow, wow, what on earth are you being told? You know, this is in this is I mean, it was it's quite incredible. But um, it, it told me that that little seven year old girl has had all sorts of messages about what a black woman and her young teenage daughter could do to her. And she will grow up with that bias. And at some point, hopefully in her life, she'll she'll become aware of that. But that that initial that initial um instinct to jump away is always going to be there and she will have to work quite hard to get rid of that even if she intellectually knows and in her heart of heart knows it's not the right thing to do it will nonetheless be unfortunately a very unconscious thing so I'm not sure how unconscious bias training making her aware of her prejudice is going to help what she would need is behavioral strategies to um, mitigate against the unconscious bias that she has and that's what's needed so there needs to be a sea change in the um type of unconscious bias training that's available my view would be you know let's start thinking about behavioral interventions that mitigate against an inevitable happening which is um something you can't you can't just this you know dispel your uh unconscious bias when you're 45 years of age it doesn't just go away Thank you for sharing that powerful story. And I guess that also highlights how important it is to have these conversations very early on. I am still learning, but I try to talk to my um, two boys about these conversations. And I'm really thinking of a positive. They're in a very diverse part of England. Um, they have children who speak 42 languages in their school. Um, and um, there, there are lots of interesting conversations and opportunity for conversation because of that diversity. Um, Professor, what, what do you think about things like unconscious bias training and bystander training? Uh, of course, like with well-being, I think it, the risk is of it being a tick box exercise. Yes. No, I couldn't say any more than than Lady has already said. Um, so so not, not much more to add. I just think that... Um, uh, that it moves beyond the training to our roles as people who sit on appointments committees. And in my day, when I was chief examiner, uh, the Royal College of Psychiatrists and training, I uh, was very, very keen to ensure that the examiners were trained. And, um, and, and the whole idea 
for that at that time. This is going back, you know, I stopped being chief examiner in 2005. So it's, you know, it's 15, 15, 16 years ago. And the whole purpose of my training was to talk about fairness, because I thought that's a very British thing to speak of, to use that term, that the whole purpose of an exam is for it to be fair. But but the videos which I created allowed me to to not use the terms bias, but to get people to tell me whether they whether they passed somebody or not and tell me how well they passed them. So that sometimes they would say that they'd given somebody seven or eight out of ten. And I would have given that person five. And then I'd ask him, why did they do that? And then I tell them why they couldn't possibly give that person eight, given what the person had actually done. So that, and of course, all of them, that's done very nicely and very gently and done with humor and all that sort of stuff. But that work never once talked about bias, always about fairness. And never, very, very rarely did I indicate something about the characteristics of the person, even though I knew what the characteristics were that underlay the degree to which the person passed or failed, even though I thought they had passed or they slightly failed. So I, so, so that's a, a long-winded way of coming to talk a little bit about, about sitting on appointments committees at all levels, not just at trainee level, appointing trainees or anything of that sort, and, and very gently making sure that you summarize why, why the person ought to get the post or not. And very, very gently with a kind of, again, as Ladi has said, humor is wonderful because allow you to say something about somebody who says something which is totally, totally false, which is totally misguided, which is coming out of an accent, hearing somebody speak in a particular kind of way, and then making judgments about that, but not being aware that that's why they're doing it. So you have to find your way of counterbalancing that within appointments committees and find a way to speak so that other people on the committee can see the value of the person who somebody is trying to to dismiss and so on. So it takes a lot of courage to do that. Um, but I, I, I'm not opposed to to training. I'm just saying the training isn't enough. We, we has, ourselves have to be able to do the work and act responsibly and act with courage when we are on the we're in the arena where judgments are being made and where we can see that there's an unfair judgment being made, not on the basis of somebody's presentation, but on the basis of some kind of perception that others have of them. That That is uh, spot on. And I guess that is what I meant, uh, because if we are putting the onus just on some particular training and we're then taking the responsibility away from ourselves, isn't it, that these things should be everyone's problem? When we talk about um, gender things as well, like the different kinds of privileges, I know we're focusing on um, ethnicity today, but it is important that it's um, we don't depend on other things to solve these issues and that all of us have a part to play and that all these things about different kinds of privileges and making the world fairer um, should fall on everybody. It should be everyone's problem. 
you've also made me think about another huge topic, differential attainment in, in various themes, not just exams. Um, again, this is to do with designation, ethnicity, um, country of uh, qualification. And I know um, college and other specialty colleges are also doing lots of work on this. Um, but it, it then took me on to think about just well-being because this whole podcast series was about a well-being um, theme on the various things that affect our well-being. And I'm reminded about the GMC's report, uh, Caring for Doctors, Caring for Patients. And they talk about the ABCs for doctor, doctors' well-being and the B in that is belonging. Um, and in few of the other episodes as well, we've talked about um, civility, inclusivity, just the importance of feeling like you belong and being welcomed. Um, and I, I was also hearing at a diaspora organization conference recently about the global shortage of doctors and healthcare professionals. And it's a no brainer that we should be treating people better, welcoming them better, inducting them better, and also talking about the strengths they bring when they come in, not just that they are different people coming from a different place, uh, trying to fit in to plug the gaps like Doug um, Smith was saying earlier. So what what advice do you have um, any or any reflections about how we can make that better, like the culture change? Of course, it won't happen overnight, um, whether it be through allies, um, people speaking up, uh, culture change, any ideas at all? Obviously, it's important to feel welcome. And it's also important to have a sense of belonging because they're they're two aspects of the same thing, aren't they? And um, so, and I've I, I come back to myself for a minute. You know, I've lived in the UK since 1979, and um, and I, am I am I you know do I feel I belong? And and I suppose I'd say sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. So that's my way of saying that when you're an immigrant, I know the term immigrant is not like a slur, uh, but I am an immigrant. When you're an immigrant, there are difficulties with how you fit in. And, um, and I'm not sure that I fit into Lagos anymore because I was born in Lagos. So, so it's not as if the problem is only to do with me fitting into the UK uh, because some of that problem is that I no longer fit in to Lagos. And, and just to emphasize the point, I, I did a talk yesterday uh, for trainees in Lagos. And um, and I thought that was very interesting because I came off at the end of it. I came and said to my wife, I'm no longer Nigerian, you know, and, and that made me realize that my whole approach, the my way of answering the questions that asked me, the th my preoccupations were not the same preoccupations as they had. So so it's a complex world for those of us who migrate. But nonetheless, I still agree with you, Siobhan that uh, being welcome is important. Uh, and I always give this example of the fact that I go to work, I go to work in, in, in Singapore, this one I used to go to Singapore every year, and, um, and people will always come and meet me. And they would be so hospitable, they come out and ensure that in the evenings I wasn't feeling lonely and that I wasn't on my own and they'd arrange for me to come to meals and all that sort of stuff. And I have to work very, very hard to reciprocate when they come to the UK. 
have to be very, I have to remind myself because I've stopped being as hospitable as I would be if I was living in Lagos. Uh, so there's something about the culture that's very diffident and very timid. It's not that it's an unwelcoming culture so much. It's just that the way it expresses itself can make it to those of us who come from much more hospitable places can make us feel that we're not being properly welcome. So everything we can do to improve that is worth doing. And those of us who come from, you know, as the, the, the term we use is that we are materially poor, but we're socially rich. Those of us who come from Africa and Asia, who originally come from Africa and Asia, that we have this kind of willingness to be um, to be more receptive and more receiving of others, that that aspect of our culture, that we should bring that with us and we come to the northern hemisphere and that we should retain some of that and that we should invite our trainees to come out with us for a meal and we should be you know i was totally preoccupied with the with the families of the trainees of mine who came from india during the delta outbreak in india i emailed all of them who had gone back home and the current trainees that i have who were indian i made sure that i asked after their relatives and a lot of them had lost relatives and just to remind ourselves of the common humanity and that it's not there's nothing intrusive about asking how people are and how they're getting on and whether their relatives in other parts of the world are well and things of that. So, so that is something which we bring with us because that's just the way our cultures operate, where we've come from. And I think maybe we should also be trying to use that to change how people behave, at least in our local areas in the UK. I totally agree. The reason I did ask that was precisely those examples that you gave, because when when we hear stories of international medical graduates who come more recently or still in the day, some of the stories seem very similar to experiences still happening 10 years ago in terms of uh, being put on call straight away or being very socially isolated. And I guess there's also a lot of changes in um, the way we are taught. Uh, I remember hearing you at the IMG conference for the first time, uh, Professor, where you were talking about um, a PLAB experience where if someone's asking a lady, a role player about postnatal depression and they, they were asking about oh, did you have a boy or a girl? And sort of a bit of disappointment in the tone unconsciously when they said it was a girl. And and you were sort of telling us that that is culture speaking, that that does not reflect their history taking abilities or as far as the exam goes, and that we need to be able to differentiate those things when it comes to assessment and things like that. I, I think those are really um, important points. Um, Dr. Smith, did you have anything to add about the welcoming belonging aspects? Well, it's interesting hearing what you say. I mean, I was born in Manchester, so I was born and bred in Britain from Nigerian parents. And um, the, the fact is that uh, people talk about inclusivity now, but it was always about belonging. I never felt I belonged. So it's not, it's not, you know, uh, something about being an, an actual immigrant. I was always an immigrant. And the way in which uh you deal with that as you're growing older is um you know for me people say well where are you from so I'm second generation Nigerian and and that was that was good because it meant I have a I had a connection with Nigeria and I was lucky enough to go and visit Nigeria when I was younger so I had a a real connection with it with real people who were there and I knew something of it but um 
and but lots of people I knew didn't have that app. You didn't have that connection. So they didn't have a rootedness. And that was really important because, as Femi has said, as someone who was born and bred in Nigeria, didn't doesn't feel he's Nigerian in the same way. And so and, and that's one of the reasons why people will, I think you'll see now, people don't have a rootedness. So they find a culture that they like the idea of. So, you know, Ghana is a good example. You get lots of black Americans who who latch onto Ghana because Ghana is relatively safe and easy to be in. They and they'll or they'll they'll have looked through their ancestry and they'll have picked out that one of their ancestors might might have been Ghanaian, and they'll change their name to a Ghanaian name or and things like that because they people are desperate to have. And it's when I talk about rootedness, what they want is a sense of belonging. They want to have a sense of this is somewhere where I can say that I I have belonging and I'll be accepted. And what and, and that's something that some people, they have that straight away, you know, because they're born and bred in the place where everyone recognises them and is like them. And for other of us, that you have to find your own place. And that's one of the reasons where you get places like London and New York, where people flock to them because they can be anything and you can make your own families, really. You almost get a proxy family. So um, you can be someone who is... Um, you know, uh, second or third generation Nigerian, who's not quite Nigerian. Not you. You know that you're never going to be counted as as British because when you, if you walk down the road in some little village, in you know, in the outskirts of Kent, then people are going to wonder where you're from. It wouldn't matter how long. You know, I could I could have lived in, you know, I could have been born there and lived there all my life, but there's still people will ask me where you're from. They don't mean because I don't think I could be from there. So there's always going to be that sense that you don't quite belong. Over time, that will change in my children and their children, you know, because people are more accepting that the society now is is more multicultural. But um, it does mean, and it's interesting you you say about kind of feeling welcome. And as uh, Femi was talking, I was thinking, yeah, I remember starting somewhere new and kind of sitting, sitting on my own feeling a little bit, out of it then I open my mouth and people hear a Mancunian accent and they'll think oh, okay and someone from who's slightly from up north then we have a connection there but it takes it takes longer because people think oh you know what are you doing here and and, and I think I think particularly over my career when I've gone and sat in advisory boards and things like that you know and this, this is very senior people usually would be middle-aged um you know people most of them would be white especially academic things um and uh then I'd be sitting there and people you can see people looking at you thinking what's she doing here you know they didn't understand what I was doing there I remember going to a conference and I was actually present, presenting at the conference and then I was presenting a uh, poster afterwards and I'd written this paper on um something and uh, so I was just standing by the poster about the paper. Someone comes along very excitedly. Oh, I'm looking for Dr. Smith, blah, 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 because I've read this paper. And, and so that's me. The disappointment on their face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was so disappointed. <laughs> speechless and then left. And I go in the bit of the went Because they just, you know, in their head, Dr. Smith really was not me. I don't know who Dr. Smith was in their head. But that thing of belonging, there's always trying to find the place that you fit. And actually, some you know, the fact is sometimes you have to say, well, you know, I don't fit here. I'm going to go somewhere else where, I'm, you know, it's, it's easy for me to be. Some people are better at carving out a niche for themselves. But then the other side of that is you do we do have to practice being welcoming. And you're absolutely right for me. Actually, there is something about 
the culture of how you welcome people and maybe and that goes back to that thing of how do you how do you overcome people's unconscious bias and maybe what we need to do is to just put in some some structures and say this is the kind of thing that you do so I know that places like Devon do this pretty well this is what you do when you have new trainees new people new staff whatever uh, whether they're from overseas or not you should have a uh, some have someone who's their buddy who comes and welcomes them who shakes their hand introduces them to everybody takes them around and says hello to everyone you do invite them to dinner or tea or you know all those things and you have to write it down because some of us don't know what to do actually don't know how to make people feel comfortable and if someone says if you don't mind I'd rather not come then fine but at least and, and even if it feels a little bit artificial at least it's been done and it gives people the opportunity to find someone who they may have something in common with, because you don't know that if what if you're if you're judging people based on their accent or the colour of their skin, then you're never you might never get beyond that to know what kind of person they are and what kind of doctor that they meet they might they might be and what kind of colleague they could be. You know, it's amazing when you sit down with people and you find out all the different things that they've done. It's just so interesting. You would never know. You know. And you've taken us nicely onto the wider scheme of things beyond the topic we're discussing about just being curious about each other's differences, I guess, and and conversations because we can learn so much from each other. Because um, if if, um, if if that's there, then I guess culture change would be much easier. So that that was my takeaway from that. And with regard to um, acculturation and sort of belonging. I think your story, how you narrated, Dr. Smith, that um, complements really well with the immigrant um, story that we were saying as well in terms of it's it's not just one situation that makes you feel like you're not welcomed or belonged. It can, it can be um, very local. It can be due to other reasons as well. The acculturation bit, I do find it very interesting that it's like a journey. I often think about roundabouts. Um, so that's something um, I had to get used to or most most uh, foreign doctors have to get used to. And it's particularly the mini roundabouts that make me smile when I reflect about it, because there would be obviously the, the, the there's a very a clear um, culture of waiting and queuing. And I, I used to joke when I do IMG inductions that it's something we have to unlearn uh, when we change cultures, because back where we grew up, if you let everybody pass, you'll never get where you're going to so it and it's something to unlearn so like that in mini roundabouts where all the three cars are at standstill I, I joke that that's when the Indian driver in me sort of comes up and I I go because everyone else would be waiting so I guess I guess there's um, ups and downs and it's it's a dynamic process um, over time that's that's wonderful and, and I wondered um, Doug Smith if you wanted to add anything about the um, college's equality action plan which You've had quite a big role to play in, I'm aware. Um, I did see the report, which was really comprehensive and promising about actual uh, changes and recommendations. So the action plan actually focuses on, on, I suppose, three areas. There are areas for the college and the college and what the college has to do as an employer for its staff. There are areas for um, what the college might be able to do in terms of influencing mental health services, but also how the college um, can support and influence its members in terms of the curriculum, our ongoing um, learning in terms of CPD, 
how to support its members in terms of um, actually things like tackling racism in the workplace, which is, uh, and so when you look at the action plan, there are a number of recommendations. And in fact, as we're going through those recommendations, there are, there are, they're leading on to other, other bits of work. So the tackling racism in the workplace is one of those things that's come about as a result of, sort of you know, looking at the recommendations in the Equality Action Plan. The curriculum stuff is particularly important because um, there's a recognition that the curricula, the curriculum, especially, and this is more, sometimes people berate the college and say, how come you didn't do this before? And actually, college is like everywhere else. There's been a lot of learning and understanding over the, especially over the past um, you know, year and a half, couple of years, and say, you know, give us a break. The college actually had, you know, Wendy Byrne started this, and you know, when she was still president, 2018, she said, you know, let's put out a statement about racism. That was even before the rest of the world really understood that things were pretty dire. So, the college is saying now, we're this is a work in progress, and we're trying, and we are really trying to make an effort. Um, as a result of the Equality Action Plan, we're now developing a network of equality champions, people from all around the country at different stages of uh, training, consultants, trainees, um, people and also all linked to the faculties and the divisions, all of whom are interested in trying to improve equity and um, across the board for for um, psychiatrists and staff in mental health services, but also mental health services generally. Had our first meeting yesterday, which is great. And um, what uh, we're going to be doing is just trying to spread the word, raise understanding, make sure that there's an evidence based approach to things, all with a certain amount of humility and curiosity. Actually, you mentioned curiosity, because if you don't, if you don't, if you're not interested, actually, if you're not interested in what you're doing being a doctor, certainly what you're doing being a psychiatrist, I have to say, you're not interested in other people. You've got to be interested in people to do this job, I think. Um, but it's about recognising that this you know we're all learning all the time especially in this area um um and having being able to be open and honest that we don't know everything and that we are going to get things a bit wrong i think femi right at the beginning mentioned something femi you touched on something about um you know it was when we were talking about battles i think and and there are sometimes people who are alert to everything and shut shut down it means that you can shut down debate and shut down conversation and one of the things that particularly with an area like this that is so, so very personal and so and can be incredibly painful and overwhelming. Everybody has to agree that um, you've got to give people some leeway because if you you're not going to know the answers and to get to know the answers, you have to ask the questions to ask the questions. You have to admit that I don't quite know what. The issue is here or I don't quite know what that term means I don't really how am I meant to say this name how what does it mean when people do this why do you do that in your culture you know you have to be able to ask those questions and you have to, and you're not going to ask the questions if you think what you're going to get back is um an angry vituperative response because why don't you know it you should know it go away and read it yourself you know which is what happens a lot and I think that um in that sense, we need to be perhaps kind to each other. And the Equality Action Plan lends itself to that, actually. It's saying this is so these are recommendations to begin with. And we are trying to use these to help change the structure of things. And if you change the structure of how we 
deliver care and how we treat each other, then you will change something about the culture of how you treat people. To begin with, it's, it might need some pres prescriptive stuff, but it will gradually become um, as standard. And this is just our usual practice and how we do things. And in that sense, it will be easier for people and there'll be more there'll be more equity across the board. Thank you, Dr. Smith. That does sound very promising indeed, um, and things definitely moving in the right direction. Um, during my uh, PTC term as well, I, I did recall several positive um, experiences where feedback was given. For example, a, a white trainee had given feedback um, about uh, the role players who were assigned during CASC examination and how um, uh, the angry, um, or unwell, violent um, patients were black role players where there were plenty other white role players and just sort of challenged that and that feedback was uh, taken on board to be looked into. Um, so I, I guess even small things that are raised, um, people being allies in small ways even can go quite a long way in making change. Um, so in the interest of time, um, uh, Professor Oibode, I wondered if you had any final thoughts on things we've discussed today, any poetry to inspire us with, anything at all to conclude? Thank, thank you very much. I'm, I'm not sure about poetry. I was doing some poetry reading, uh, Black History Month's poetry reading yesterday, just yesterday, um, but I haven't got them next to me because I've cleared all the books and they're just behind me. Um, but yes, it's been wonderful talking to both of you, Siobhan and to Lade, it's um, we discover things ourselves, don't we? We think we know all this thing, but just listening to one another talk, we discover um, that we've got a commonality of experience and that we also have slight differences of opinions about how these things are, which tells us that there's a, a room for conversation, tells us that conversations of this kind are very, very rewarding indeed. And, um, and that maybe we should find a way uh, on a on a on a college platform at the context in the context of a conference or congress because it takes a lot of courage to do what we've just done this afternoon but having a, a a platform where two or three people can talk about these matters without fear that they're going to say the wrong thing or something of that sort and the audience will then learn um, quite a lot about the things that we've experienced that we very, very share, very rarely share with anybody else outside of our families, because we're afraid that people will say that we think that we're complaining or that we're accusing others and things of that sort. Yet that's not the purpose. The purpose is not to accuse anybody, but it's just to help other human beings know some of the things that we experience in this country, which ought not to be happening. That's that's a wonderful suggestion, Professor, and I do hope that that um, happens in terms of the platform and sort of more generally having that space, uh, what they refer to as psychologically safe space, because we, we, we're all learning, um, um, as we were discussing earlier, and that everyone makes mistakes and sometimes things are not intentional. Uh, but as long as conversations happen um, and curiosity is there, um, I guess change can happen. Um, there's just something I wanted to add, actually, and it's probably quite a serious point, so I should have said it earlier. Um, but it is this, that um, I worry sometimes that um, people might feel, and this isn't just um, white colleagues, 
but um, black and brown colleagues as well, that people might feel that, um, and I've heard people say this, talking about this stuff and everything else and trying and, and trying to uh, improve, um, you know, equality issues, it's somehow a bit of a screen for um, taking over. And there's a fear, people have a fear that, hold on a minute, um, we're going to be replaced. It's, it's a bit like invasion of the body snatchers or something. You know, there's this big fear that we're going to that, that um, everybody's going to be taken taken over, that there's going to be this kind of uh, this nightmarish situation whereby you, you, you're not allowed to speak your mind. You've got to be you've got to conform to a certain kind of uh, ideal, etc. And and actually, I, I always want people I want to be absolutely clear to people. The fact is that, um, you know, if you are brown or black, you are in a minority in the country. And that's not going to change, actually. That's not going to change forever, probably. Um, it's always going to be the case. And all people are asking for is to be uh, treated with the same level of dignity and respect that allows them to achieve their potential in life. That if you are white, you get a standard. And that's all it is. And and I think that needs to be said because um, I think there is a fear that somehow this is about getting something more than people who are white get. And it's not. It really isn't. This is just about saying that there are people who aren't able to achieve their potential, not because they're not brilliant at what they do, not because they're not clever, not because they're not able. It's just because of the colour of their skin. That's a lovely note to end on, Dr. Smith. Thank you so much. I'm I'm so delighted to have had you both join. And I do agree it is a very difficult topic to talk about. I won't deny that I was uh, really nervous to talk about it um, and even just to facilitate, even though I knew you both would be sharing all the wisdom. I hope our listeners um, enjoy this too. And I hope it encourages colleagues to be more curious want to understand the lived experience of our colleagues of ethnic minorities, want to be allies, um, and so that eventually we can level the playing field for everyone. We do have more resources and reading links, uh, which will be added to the college website. We do hope you'll also come back to listen to the other episodes to do with healthcare professionals wellbeing. And thank you so much, to our guests today, Professor Femi Oibode and Dr. Shibalade Smith. I should also ask, like you mentioned earlier, whether I did pronounce your name right to end with. Yeah, you did. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. <laughs>